week with our palming. I hope if you're visiting here for the first time, you received a goodie bag uh, when you came in. Tells us a, tells you a little bit about us. Gives you some fun stuff, we hope, and enjoy that. We'd like to ask all of you, if you're at the end of the, an aisle, if you could start the friendship pad, sign in. This is, we invite everyone, whether you are a long-term member, a regular attender, or a first-time visitor, this is uh, an opportunity for us to begin to develop a relationship with you. And so we would love to have the opportunity to do that. Several announcements before we enter into our worship service. Uh, yes, I'm officially a Georgian now. Let's see. I've been here less than a year, and I've seen the Braves win a World Series. I've seen the University of Georgia, no offense to our Georgia Tech folks here, but I've seen the University of Georgia win a national championship. And if you notice my tie, I've been to my first Masters. <laughs> See, I have to do this stuff during the, uh, during the announcement time before we enter into worship. But what a dream come true that was for me. And so I'm representing here this morning. So me and Rush. Rush has his green jacket because he's a better golfer than I am. I shoot 110, so I just wear the tie. And we, and we go from there. So we have a special week in store. This is probably the most special week in the life of the Christian as we want to be shaped by the gospel story, and this is the culmination of the gospel story. We begin with Palm Sunday this week, Thursday night. We want to invite you to our Monday Thursday service. It begins at 7 o'clock. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper as well then. Good Friday. It'll be a brief service, 45 or 50 minutes, but at noon we'll focus on the cross and our Good Friday service, and then Easter Sunday. It begins at 9 o'clock with a brunch. We're praying that it'll be slightly warmer than this morning, and sunshine, and we can be outside for the brunch, and then our 10.30 worship service. Now, a brief announcement to prepare for the brunch. A couple things. One, it is not too late to sign up to bring bacon. You can still do that. You can also do things like bring casseroles and bring fruit and bring deviled eggs and bring more bacon and sign up to help uh, prepare, set up, and clean up as well. Brent Johansson will be out there taking names and numbers and pictures of you all. I'm kidding there with that one, but doing all sorts of things to get you to sign up. We do need you to bring food a little early. If you're bringing food, bring it here at least by 8.45 so we can eat it warm and all of that next Sunday. And we promised a fun children's activity. And so we are going to do a fun children's activity headed up by Chelsea Johnson. And she is inviting, we're going to paint Easter rocks for the children's activity. The children are going to hunt for rocks painted with letters that are going to spell out a wonderful inspiring Easter message. We need volunteers to help paint and decorate the rocks. So here are the specifics. Bring your creative spirit this Wednesday, which is the 13th from 2 to 4 in the pavilion. We'll have coffee and light snacks. Wear your painting overalls. Plan on being creative and getting messy. This sounds kind of fun. If you have any questions, contact Chelsea Johnson as she is heading this up. So we want to remind you of that. And then as we look a little bit beyond Easter, kind of look at the calendar and some of the other stuff this spring, uh, the First Call Pregnancy Center is doing a spring fashion show as a fundraiser to benefit them. It will be on Tuesday, May 3rd, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. 
and the women's ministry has arranged for a group table. Carol Johansson will be out in the narthex after the service where you can register, purchase a ticket. For now, we're going to say more about this as time gets closer, but note the date, May 3rd. See Carol or anybody from the Women's Council if you have any questions regarding that. So, friends, those are some of the announcements, some of the things going on in the life of the church. As we prepare our hearts for worship, let's prepare to exalt and celebrate the Lord. and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. For sacred, for scarcely for a righteous man will someone die, yet for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. Here is love, the love of a father reaching out through eternity to save a lost and dying world. Here is love, the love of a Savior lying down his life so we might share in his eternal kingdom, vast as the ocean, powerful as a flood. Here is love. Our call to worship this morning comes from 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 10 to 13. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. 
Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Lord, may you join us this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would exalt you, that we would praise you, that we would glorify and magnify your name. Please be with us here this morning as we pray, as we praise, as we confess, as we are saturated with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let us stand and sing our opening praise, our opening hymn of praise this morning. Hosanna, loud Hosanna. great to see the young people come up waving their palm branches, and we thank them for participating in worship, and I love, Amy, we could do the handbells every week, too. That's up there with, that was a great addition as well. I got to admit, I love, love that. Our need of confession this morning comes from John's first letter. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Friends, the time of confession is a time for us to do business with God. You hear John saying, if we somehow say, even as believers, there's no sin in us, that we've somehow arrived, 
we are self-deceived. We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth that we're called to abide in is not in us. But as we do business with God, as we come clean with God, the promise is if we confess our sins, listen to this, He is not only faithful, but He's just. And He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and forgive us. Why? Because Jesus Christ Himself took upon Himself the justice of God. And so we praise God that He is just. Friends, take a few moments to do business with God, to engage with Him, coming clean before Him, being honest before Him, confessing your sins, and then in a few moments we will pray this corporate prayer of confession together. Let us pray. Friends, let us confess our sins together. Loving God, you rode a donkey and came in peace, humbled yourself and gave yourself for us. We confess our lack of humility. As you entered Jerusalem, the crowd shouted, Hosanna, save us now. On Good Friday, they shouted, crucify. We confess our praise is often empty. We sing Hosanna, but cry, crucify. As the crowd laid their palms in front of you, you took no glory for yourself. We confess that we want to be accepted and take the easy way. We do not stay true to your will. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to follow in the way of obedience. Amen. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, you hear those words, but if anyone does sin, who's anyone? It's all of us. But look at the good news. We have an advocate. What does an advocate do? An advocate comes alongside and stands alongside of you, and you are heard through your advocate. God hears and sees us through Jesus Christ, our advocate. And because of his work, what he came into Jerusalem to do, to die on a cross, he he himself is the propitiation. That means God's wrath has turned to favor. God's righteous anger has turned to joy and pleasure 
at his children, at his family, at his believers. Friends, if you are resting upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, I declare unto you today that you are forgiven for all of your sins. He is faithful and just. He has forgiven you and cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Let's stand and continue to praise the Lord. All glory, laud, and honor. As we continue in worship this morning, let's go before the Lord in our time of prayer where we will recite together the Lord's Prayer and I will lead us in the pastoral prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God, you are our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, We praise you for you are with us. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob goes before us and is with us. Your word tells us to be still and to know that you are God. And so we come before you asking that we would trust you. 
that we would be still before you, our Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, whose name is hallowed, whose kingdom we long for, whose will we pray to stay true to, that as our Lord Jesus did, that we would grow more and more in delighting to do your will. We implore you and pray for our daily bread and ask for forgiveness of sins. And Father, we pray for those who are afflicted, for those who are experiencing any sort of trouble or turmoil, physical pain, emotional hurt, loss, whatever it might be, we ask that you would comfort them, that you would be with them. Help us all to be still before you and know that you are God, that you are sovereign Lord, who rules and reigns over the entire universe. Help us, Lord, also to be a gracious people. Lead us not into temptation. May we grow in holiness, becoming more humble, that we would cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in Christ's likeness in our life, being delivered from evil and from the evil one and his tyranny, and living in the freedom of serving your kingdom. Thank you for the freedom that it is not about us, and we ask your forgiveness that so often we make it about us. We're more concerned with our appearance and our reputations and proving ourselves and vindicating ourselves than we are the, your glory and your honor and your majesty and your kingdom. So, Father, we pray that you cleanse us from all these things to know your power, to know your pleasure over us, to know your peace. For yours and yours alone is the glory. We thank you for loving us. May we respond, may we as we are filled with your love respond by loving you and loving one another. We pray all of these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.
Having heard the choir sing twice already this morning, we are in for one great, worshipful, King Jesus exalting week. I'm pretty excited for Thursday night and Friday and wait till Sunday morning. I am really, when we go, Christ is risen and you go, he is risen indeed. That is about my favorite time of the year right then. Because that is our ultimate hope. The fact that Jesus' resurrection gets the final word. Now, this week, everything we're looking at is moving towards that. From this morning to when Jesus enters into his city, Jerusalem, to Thursday night where we look at the fact all the different things of the foot washing. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And then the Last Supper, and he goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane and prays, leading to his arrest and his trial, leading to the cross on Good Friday, all to redeem us, all to renew all things, all to bring reconciliation, to reverse the effects of the fall. This truly is the most special week in the week of the believer, where we look at the culmination of the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel. We're beginning this morning with Palm Sunday, okay? Four gospels. I had four choices to look at in terms of this. I chose Mark for this morning. Don't ask me why, I just chose Mark. So if you have Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. We're going to look at Mark's account of the triumphal entry. And before we read the text, let's pray together. Lord, may the Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning and teach us both individually and as a church, as your body, as this portion of your body, what it is you want us to learn. How do you want to change us? How do you want to transform us through the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ? May we truly come under your word, not above it with our biases and our prejudices, not alongside of it but under it. What you speak, may we submit to, and may we listen. Give us ears to hear and open hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany 
with the twelve. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It is completely true, and it is given because he loves us. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and we're looking at Mark's account of the triumphal entry. And maybe this is one of the reasons I chose to do Mark's gospel. His, to me, is the simplest to outline. Sixteen chapters divided into chapters one to eight is basically Mark's account of who is Jesus? Who is this king? And then Mark chapters 9 to 16, which chapter 11 falls into, is what did this king come to do? We have true royalty. What's he all about? What's his mission? What's his purpose? What's his agenda? One of Evie's and my favorite movies, it comes on usually like TBS or TNT now, every now and again, is the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. Anybody ever see Mr. Holland's Opus? Remember that movie from way back when? Story of a high school music teacher, Mr. Holland and his family. And at one point in the movie, they are at a parade. Maybe a Fourth of July parade or something like that. Mr. Holland is leading the marching band. And you have all the typical parade stuff. You got bands and you have fire trucks and you have honking cars. Lots of celebration, lots of noise. And they notice that their young son, Cole, is sleeping, oblivious to all the noise and all the excitement that's going on around him, only to later discover that he is deaf. He cannot hear a thing. And so even though he is at the parade, he is not able to really experience and therefore understand all that is going on around him. He's there, but he doesn't get, he's not able to fully experience the significance. Let me give you another illustration. Hopefully you'll find this a little bit more comical. Another TV show Evie and I enjoy is the one Everybody Loves Raymond. Anybody ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond? Okay. Maybe because Ray Barone was a sports writer, I like that. Has the sports connection or something like that. But there was one episode where Ray was saying to Deborah. Deborah, you're on the train tracks, but you do not hear the woo-woo. There's my paraphrase of what's going on in this passage. This is what it was like for both the Jewish leadership and the crowd, and for the crowd who had gathered for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They're on the tracks. They're at the parade. They're not hearing the woo-woo because they didn't understand that their king is coming. Yes, he's coming, and they knew that part, but they were blind to the significance. Their king is coming, but they truly do not get it. Do we? Do we understand your king is coming? He is true royalty. You know, when Pilate, a few days later, will put that inscription, the king of the Jews, you want to know something? He got that right. What they missed was the significance of that, what he came to accomplish, what he came to do. See, are we at the parade, but really not hearing the music? Do we come to church? Do we attend Sunday school? Do we go to a home fellowship group? Do we do all sorts of activities? Do we do church, but miss the significance of being the church, hearing the music of the gospel, 
and taking the gospel and the message of redemption to a lost and dying world. See, this passage from Mark is all about the authority of Jesus. And we're going to look at that from two perspectives this morning. Two, ease, two perspectives. One, how easily Jesus' authority is misunderstood. You're on the tracks, but you're not hearing the woo-woo. You're not alone. And then two, what is the purpose of Jesus' authority? Yes, here's true royalty. The king is coming. It's easy to miss his authority, to misunderstand it. And what is its purpose? First of all, how easy it is to misunderstand Jesus' kingly authority. Commentators remind us that the context of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem marks the end of his avoiding crowds and what commentators like to call his messianic secret. In other words, if you read through the whole of the Gospel of Mark, you find out time and again Jesus will do something and then don't tell anybody. He'll do another miracle or perform something, and don't tell anybody. So he was keeping it secret. Now the secret's over. It's the end of avoiding crowds, the end of his secrecy, and the beginning of open confrontation with opponents in the temple. This is day one of his Holy Week, of his Passion Week, and it begins with the crowds greeting his dramatic arrival on a coronation animal with cheers as they hail the coming of David's kingdom. The scene ends when Jesus makes a brief entrance into the temple. Look with me at verse 1. Let's look at the text. When they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Look at this. Here comes Jesus nearing the city of Jerusalem. He's coming from the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem, and he exercises his kingly authority immediately, first by directing his disciples to go and get a colt. Look at the details here. Jesus is showing his direct foreknowledge, his sovereignty, his control, his authority over the entire situation. He tells them precisely where they will find the animal. He tells them exactly that this will be an animal no one's ever sat on. Interesting detail. He tells them that they're going to be challenged. He says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? When they try to secure the colt, He also tells them the answer to give them. Tell them the Lord has need of it, and he'll send it back here immediately. The disciples obey. They do as they're told. And guess what happens? The scene unfolds exactly down to the detail how the Lord said it would. Your king is coming. Here's true royalty. And what do we learn? He has this completely in his hands. This is his supremacy, this is his sovereignty, this is his preeminence. He has this completely under his control. Nothing catches him off guard. He says, here's what's going to happen, here's what to do, here's how to respond when somebody challenges you, and it happens exactly as he outlined it. David Garland, writing in this commentary, says this about this. He says, Jesus orchestrates a grand entrance into Jerusalem that departs significantly from his previous 
fixed patterns of movement in the Gospel of Mark. He has walked everywhere else in his ministry except for the time he crossed the lake in a boat. The decision to complete this last stage of his journey to Jerusalem riding on an animal looks like some kind of claim to authority. The animal he chooses has never been ridden, which makes it absolutely suitable for a sacred purpose and worthy of a king. What happens next? The scene continues. Verse 4, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The text tells us that many spread their cloaks on the road. The parallel passages in the other Gospels indicate that there was a great crowd. The crowd had come for the feast. This is Passover week, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's celebrated at the time of the Passover. Now, attendance at the Passover was required for every Jewish person. Since the reign of King Josiah, it was required that people travel to the central sanctuary in Jerusalem and not stay in their local communities for the feast. Josephus was a Jewish historian later on in the first century A.D., so about 30 years later, he estimated in around 60 to 65 A.D. that attendance at the Passover was about 2.7 million, which means rough estimates go back 30 years, and it's quite possible that there are up to 2 million pilgrims in attendance at the Passover. The text here in Mark tells us that they took leafy branches We learn that these are palm branches. And again, they come out. What is the significance? They come out to meet Jesus. What is the significance of the palm branches? I hope the kids who are waving the palm branches listen to this next part of the history. Now, I'm totally dependent on a former pastor friend of mine and a historian for uh, this as sources here. And so, and that is because I'm not a trained historian, so I have to do the research in terms of this. But during the period between the end of the Old Testament, see, this is very important, though, for understanding us the significance of this. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament is something that is called the intertestamental period, about 400 years between, say, the close of the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus. Something then took place that would define the Jewish people in terms of their national identity and history for years to come. In the second century B.C., the temple was utterly, utterly desecrated by a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the leader of a Hellenistic empire known as the Seleucid Empire. And a Jewish man by the name of Mattathias was determined to rescue the temple, and the nation. And so he became the leader of a guerrilla group that fought against the Seleucids. When Mattathias died, he passed on the leader. The leadership was passed on to his son, a man by the name of Judas, who later became known as Judas Maccabeus. 
And under Judas Maccabeus' leadership in 164 B.C., the temple was res rescued for the Jews to practice their faith. The event became commemorated and celebrated with a new annual feast known as the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights, which is known today as Hanukkah. Later, Judas's brother Simon Maccabeus drove the Seleucids out of Jerusalem, not just the temple, but out of Jerusalem altogether, and that event was celebrated with a parade. Think of the World Series Championship with the Braves. Think of a victory parade for the University of Georgia. Okay, in that parade, the Jewish people celebrated this victory with music, and guess what else? The waving of palm branches. The palm branch became a symbol of military victory, of national triumph. My pastor friend says, think if our nation was conquered by a foreign power. Troops were watching our every move. How might we celebrate, say, the 4th of July? He says we would probably ring little bells, liberty bells, with the hope of freedom when the liberty bell would ring again. He makes the point that if you look at this, in the second century B.C., this was one of the few times in Jewish history that the Jewish nation was free from foreign rule. Look back over Jewish history. They were under Egypt. They were under the Medes and the Persians. They were under Greece. Later, they'll be under the Roman Empire. But you have roughly 100 years right now, until the Romans take over in 63 B.C., that the Jewish people were politically free. And one of the things they did during this time was they minted their own coins. And one of the coins contains a picture or an image of, guess what? Palm branches. Why? Because the palm branch became a symbol of national freedom. So now take that history, and that history is very important for this, because now look at what happens. Here comes Jesus. The crowd is thinking, here comes our king. Here comes our Messiah. Does Jesus say, no, no, no? No, he doesn't deny this. Here comes true royalty. He's making a so, sort of public declaration. The messianic secret is over. And what do they do? They meet him with the waving of palm branches, which means what for them? National freedom. You're going to overthrow Rome. Political revolution. Here it comes. And the text tells us they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is the Hebrew word literally meaning save now. It comes from what is known as the Hallel, which is the series of psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that would be sung every morning at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, every Jewish pilgrim would be familiar with this history. This is their history. This is their story. And obviously, they would be filled with what? Hope and anticipation. They're crying, save now, hallel, hosanna. But they have an anticipation of what that save now would mean, wouldn't they? Overthrow Rome. Because here they are. They are putting their cloaks on the road. They're waving their palm branches, the, you know, the picture of freedom, the picture of national freedom. They're risking their lives before the Romans. They're saying, we're going to put our lot in the hat of Jesus. 
They're looking to Jesus as their king. And what does Jesus do? Absolutely nothing from their perspective. My pastor friend, again, makes the excellent point in their thinking it was the cruelest act that one could perform to raise their hopes than dash them to pieces. Is it any wonder in just a few short days they were going to yell out, crucify him? And can I tell you something? If we were there, we would have done the exact same thing. Don't fool yourself. If anyone says he has no sin, he does what? He deceives himself. Don't fool yourself into thinking, I wouldn't have done that. I would have heard the woo-woo on the train tracks. No, you wouldn't. So what was the meaning of his coming? They expected a king, the king of their expectations. As Tim Keller calls it, a right-side-up kingdom. They obviously expected this king to exercise his kingly authority, overthrow Rome, set them free, and start the political revolution. They expected to be saved from Rome, but Jesus was about to give them something far deeper. What was the purpose of Jesus' kingly authority? David Garland again writes, he says, Ironically, Jesus enters the city from the Mount of Olives with the Hallel ringing in his ears. He will later depart for the Mount of Olives to pray in torment after he and his disciples have sung a hymn possibly a Hillel psalm, at the close of his last supper. Remember I said earlier, what is Mark chapters 9 to 16 all about? It's all about answering the question, what did Jesus, what did this king, what did the true king come to do? Let me tell you what he didn't come to do. He didn't come to lead a military takeover. He didn't come to lead a military coup. Yes, he came to defeat Israel's enemies and ours, but do you want to know something? Their enemies and ours are absolutely different from what we think our enemies are. We think our enemies are our circumstances or this relationship or this affliction we're going into. We have to recognize that the text doesn't give us the entire answer. Jesus is here only entering Jerusalem. This is day one of Passion Week, day one of Holy Week. But why is he entering Jerusalem? What do we learn from the rest of the story? David Garland again says, Roman guards will lead Jesus out of the city as a defeated captive. Consequently, Jesus does not share the disciples' earthly fantasies of glory. He appears in the city as he had forewarned times to suffer and to die, not to set up a rival kingdom to Caesar. He comes as a king who will be crowned with thorns and throned on a cross and hailed as the chief of fools. His entrance points to a different kind of triumph than the one envisioned by the crowd, one that will be more powerful than any Davidic monarchy and more far-reaching than the narrow borders of Israel or even the Roman Empire. See, look at what we learn here. Jesus does not ride in on a royal steed but on a donkey, on a colt that we're told has never been sat on or ridden before. R.C. Sproul makes an interesting point. He says, in the Holy Land, donkeys are not like they are here in the U.S. He says, they are much smaller. Grown men have to usually bend their knees as they ride so their feet don't drag on the ground. 
So instead of riding in royal style, Jesus is self-consciously identifying himself with the prophecy of Zechariah, and specifically Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He enters Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. He is king, absolutely, but he is a king who comes to give his power away. Instead of, he's the one who deserves all glory, honor, majesty, supremacy. And instead, what does he do? He takes none upon himself, but even riding on a lowly colt, a colt that's never been ridden before, he gives it all away. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes in lowliness, meekness, and humility. This is not our normal expectations. He's the upside-down king. He failed to give the people what they wanted, but instead he goes so far deeper to give them and us what they truly need. See, when we go to Jesus, what do we typically ask for? What do we typically want? What do we typically pray for? And Jesus isn't saying, don't pray for these things. But typically, we pray for our lives to be better, healing, power, rescue, restoration. You know, we're praying for joy. We're praying for career. We're praying for relationships. We're praying for reputation. Jesus says, you're not going far enough. You're not recognizing your truest needs. You're you're thinking, I've come to give you only what you want. I've come to give you what you truly need, forgiveness, salvation, and love. Yes, I've come to save you from your enemies, but your enemies are not political, governmental. Your enemies are sin, death, and hell itself. And Jesus says, I've come to give you what you need, redemption, forgiveness, love. Only Jesus came to forgive us and love us perfectly. See, the only solution is Christ and the gospel. Dane Ortland says, we spread out our cloaks on the road for him as he prepared to spread out his cloak of righteousness on us. You don't need power and reputation and peace and your circumstances to all be pleasurable. You do need his righteousness. You do need forgiveness and love. I love the fact that the choir sang this morning, here is love. His love is demonstrated for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet hating him and hostile to him, we were yelling, crucify him. What did he do? He came and he died for us. He came to love us forever. He came to give us, maybe not what we want, but what we truly need. Thank God that God does not grant us our wish to be our own Savior, but instead gives us our truest, deepest need, Jesus Christ. 
That is what he came into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey for, to provide what we most need, forgiveness and salvation. Forgiveness and salvation that we now get to taste. Let's pray. As we come to your table now, Father, we thank you that you know our frame, you know we are but dust, and you know that we need to be strengthened and renewed in the truths of the gospel. We can hear them and they just slide right off our hearts like Teflon. So what have you given us? You've given us ordinary bread and ordinary grape juice to point to such a deeper reality, the reality of Jesus' death on a cross. Make his death real to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did not, you know, for tonight and the Lord's Supper, we're going kind of back to the normal, so to speak, in May. If you did not receive one of the prepackaged ones and you want one, raise your hand. If you need one, any of the ushers or deacons can... Nice and high, Barb, so they, they see you. We have one over here, too. I want to make sure everybody has one. We're doing it this way. We're trying to be good stewards for now, and Thursday night we're doing it this way. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, if you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are a part of an evangelical church, you are invited to come and partake of this, the Lord's table. Not my table, not the Sessions table, not Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church's table, the Lord's table. The sacrament was instituted by Jesus himself. I like to call this God's hospitality, where he's calling his family together to take this meal, to be renewed in the covenant relationship with him, to be strengthened, to be reminded, to ta- as the psalmist said, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because this is a family meal, you must be a part of the family of God to take this. That means if you've received and rested upon Jesus alone as your Savior, if you're trusting him, that may seem so counterintuitive to you, But if you're going, okay, it's not on the basis of my moral life or my spirituality or any inherent goodness, but just on the basis of Jesus and Jesus alone. Come and partake. It's only if you're not ready to trust in Jesus. We'd ask you to let the elements pass by, but we would ask you to come and ask Jesus to make himself real to you. I believe that he's the good shepherd who wants to show himself to you. And maybe today is the day of salvation. Maybe today is the day where you turn your heart to the Lord. I invite you to do that. And my Christian friends, we need to remember this is all about grace. This is not a table of performance. Lay your deadly doing down 
Lay your performance down. Receive grace. Jesus loves you. Feel Jesus' pleasure washing over you, all because of what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these ordinary elements, and we ask now that you would set them apart for their holy use, that we, your people, would be strengthened by the power of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. May we taste and see that you are good and that you, even though you may not give us everything we want, certainly give us everything we need. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Father, we thank you so much for the redemption that is found in Christ. May it be more and more real to our hearts. May your love and forgiveness be something that we can taste as we go from here to love the people of this community, to love our families and our neighbors and our friends. Fill us with the love of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together and sing, We Will Feast in the House of Zion.
Friends, I invite you to receive the Lord's benediction, to receive the favor of the Lord upon yourself, to be blessed by Him, that you may go out and be a blessing to this community and to the world. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.